You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Bizarre, terrifying. Rock Hudson, in an astonishing change of pace, stars in seconds. Rock Hudson as a second, freed from all responsibilities, now ready to taste new pleasures. Rock Hudson, as a man who buys for himself a totally new life, a chance to begin again, every man's dream since time began. As soon as these people leave, I'm going to attack you. I want you to know that. I'm counting on it. Rock Hudson, as a man who lives the nightmare of being a second. Why are you all staring at me like that? <laughs> Hey, John. Hey, John. <laughs> hey, John. Why are they staring at me like that? They know. <laughs> they know what? They're like you. Reborns. Oh, Laura! Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this special episode, I am talking with Jez Connolly and Emma Westwood about their new book on Seconds, the John Frankenheimer film. We covered it a while ago on The Projection Booth. Highly recommend that you check out that episode, as well as checking out their book, which is available through the Constellations imprint. There will be a link over at projection-booth.com. Enjoy the book and enjoy this interview. I guess I want to start at the beginning as far as how did this project come about and how well did you two know each other before you started on this? I guess it did start with me. I'm just thinking back to the last time that I spoke to you, which was which was part of your podcast around the thing, the John Carpenter film. At, at the end of my conversation with you on that day, I remember actually saying to you, or you asking me, um, what have you got coming through the pipeline? And I said, well, I've just started working on this book about the John Parker and the film Seconds. And that was back in September 2016. This is quite a long gestation period, part of which involves basically being placed into a medically induced coma for maybe about 18 months almost. I wrote so much. I completely ran out of steam. But I just, I got to about halfway through on what I perceived as being the whole finished thing. So I, I just wasn't ready to give up on it. But it was an ice, effectively. And, and then I got to that point where I just, you know, Given that I honestly can't see myself chewing through the rest of this, how can how can this get over the finishing line? How can this progress? So I started to think about who might be a good person to approach. And because I was aware of Emma's work in the Devil's Advocates series, which is the publisher, I also the publisher of this, of this book, I kind of thought, well, I just got Emma a line. And that's what happened, really. And we just kind of started chatting about it. It's quite apparent what Emma was telling me, that this was a film that she was really interested in as well. And so that's kind of how it kind of germinated, really. I think it actually germinated with me, Jez. I think you got it all wrong. I manifested this. 
I manifested it. I, I I actually thought to myself, gee, I'd like to write a book on seconds. And the next thing I get an email from you. It was actually quite freaky. <laughs> Emma, what is your, your history with the film? My history in, in the film with the film is as a lover of the film. I hadn't written about it before or really spoken much about it. But it was one of those films that to watch, and I hadn't watched it really young. I watched it in my 30s, I think, when the first time I'd seen it. And by that time, I'd seen a lot of cinema, let's say. (laughs) And it was one of those films that I still watched for the first time and went, wow. Those experiences are few and far between, I would say, these days. And you kind of feel like even if you hadn't I didn't know much. Well, for example, I didn't know much about it when I watched it. So I got to, I guess I got to watch it fresh, but you kind of have a feeling that, you know, even if you haven't seen all the masterpieces, you feel like you know what they are or you you can identify them or you've got them on the bucket list. And it was just something that my uncle showed me and I was just blown away right from the first moments, right from that beautiful bass credit sequence. And it didn't let go the whole way through, which is saying something because there can be films, even films that you love, that will have purple patches um, and that you will repeat watch and not necessarily it won't have that grip on you or it'll you'll see it in a different way. Whereas with seconds, I felt like I could see it even though I saw it in a... I would say, you know, you, you're always going to see a film differently when you re-watch it because you just get more and more, but it was never lessened, the experience. I would actually say now it hasn't lessened. I can still watch Seconds even after writing the book with Jez and um, which, you know, obviously we're pretty close to that film now and find more in it and, and enjoy the experience. The same with The Fly, which is the other book I wrote for Devil's Advocates. Jez and I have surprisingly similar taste in cinema, so that was a made us a good match for writing this as well. Because the the thing is one of my favourite films as well, uh, and Dead of Night, which um, Jez wrote about, which he co-authored, a different co-authoring experience, I would say, to what he had with me, a very different approach. Even recently, I just saw Jez put up a post about ABBA. And while I like more ABBA songs than Jez, his choice of ABBA song that he liked is an exceptional ABBA song. So well done, Jez. So Jez, you talked about how the the book was kind of half finished. I'm curious which half. I don't know what now constitutes the early chapters. I had pretty much completed not completely and then I'd made I'd sort of nibbled into some of what I considered to be would be the later chapters but there were bits all the way through uh, more or less to the end but the later chapters were very kind of fragmented the final result as, as, as you see it now is it's a bit yin yang in a sense because there's, there's elements once, once Emma had written her bit of this uh, as part of the kind of the shape rather than role of arriving at the finished thing. I kind of then went into, or rather she went into a bit that I'd written and added elements to some of those earlier chapters. And then when I saw what she'd done, I went into the bits that she'd done and I added, I added a few bits as well. It's quite a mixture. Uh, and, and but all having said that, it is an interesting challenge for the, for the reader, if they so choose to do it, is to see if they can discern who wrote which bits. Because there are some chapters that are very much more me, but others are very much more Emma. So uh, you know, as I kind of parlour the game, readers might like to do that. I've got absolutely nothing else to do. They can do that. It's not quite as um, binary, like as the film, so it doesn't go that Jez first half, Emma second half, even though there's probably, yeah, Jez had put more meat on the first half. It's not quite like that. We're a little bit more like the thing than um, <laughs> seconds. <laughs> We're a a monster that just has absorbed itself, basically. (laughs) I love the structure of the book, and I love the way that it is split apart into the the different chapters. Really, it's very compelling. The one chapter that really spoke to me was the one where you are kind of taking the reader through the film via the digestive track. I really appreciated that one. I kind of was inspired by an analysis of 
Hitchcock Psycho that I'd read some years before I cut over the name of the writer. But yeah, there was a comparison to the precedent like human digestion, that, that, that that film followed that kind of pattern. I think to some extent, uh, Seconds does the same. In fact, you actually, in the, in the credit sequence, you enter the mouth of a person. Uh, so you are literally, almost literally being consumed at the outset, and then you pass through the film with the digestive tract, and then the, the beach at the end has so much effluence being pumped <laughs> into the ocean, you could argue. But I think it's the white reason I like that is because it can make you think about how the process of watching the film can have an effect on you during the time that you are you are watching it. So at some point in the in the movie, you actually enter the stomach chamber, so, so you will start to be involved in the process of digestion whilst you're watching it, which is quite a grim thought. There's something in the book about you know bringing comparisons between Psycho and Seconds. <clears throat> yeah, I have to say that the structure was all brought to me by Jez, but I really like that experience of working with what he had set up because it was a very different structure to my previous um, auto book. I liked that counterpoint. I liked working with that feeling of him providing the direction and then me uh, springboarding off it. I guess that's the best way of saying it. It was quite a an exciting experience, writing experience. One thing, one thing I would say, I was I was pretty clear from the outset. What books I've written previously, what I, I knew what I didn't want to do in terms of the initial approach, and I think that was the same with this one. That I knew I didn't want to do a kind of linear walkthrough. I didn't want to re- to reflect the plot structure or the production schedule or anything like that. I wanted it to be this quite a loose assemblage of thoughts triggered by the themes in the film and just see how that kind of came together, really. Uh, it might be a bit challenging sometimes. I don't know. We'll have to see how people do react respond to that. But it's definitely not a linear experience. And there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination. We keep referring back to things that we referred to in earlier parts because it's relevant to do that in that later chapter. So, so I, I think it was a... I just want a more interesting approach. I think I was saying to both one of my my favourite books is The Hitchcock Murders by Peter Conrad. He was normally a film writer, but this book was about his his own memories of seeing Hitchcock's films. And the book that he wrote was very much triggered by the structure of it was triggered by his memories. And as a reader, I thought it was really interesting and kind of broke mould about how you write about film. Uh, that's so it's all been quite an influential book on the way I approach this sort of thing. I think the way Emma kind of fitted in with that, you know, really added to, to the end result. You know, it's better than I could have done it that way. I can see how that's influenced even furthered um, in his writing styles because he's uh, submitted and uh, he's contributed to my next book on Bride of Frankenstein, which is actually a book of essays. And that is what Jez has written about his experiences of seeing the Bride of Frankenstein in the 70s on late night TV. Yes, I asked Emma what her history was with the film. What is your history with Seconds? I wasn't old enough to go see it at the cinema when it came out. So I first encountered it in a late night screening in the 1980s on Channel 4, UK TV channel, which is currently actually under a fair degree of threat uh, because it doesn't quite conform to our, our wonderful government sees us what, how many we should behave. But I'm so thankful. Channel 4 started up in about 82, I think it was, and for several years in the 80s, they showed, you know, quite a lot of movies that would otherwise not have been shown, which is very much pre-satellite uh, and digital channels that dedicated to film screenings. You know, so, so you were looking, I, I, what, for instance, I, I saw pretty much all of the British kitchen sink dramas from the late 50s, early 60s, courtesy of Channel 4. And so second, there's one of those late night, Friday night screenings. And one of the things I touch on in the book is, is how that first viewing late at night on a you know a four by three boxy TV screen back in the eighties, and how I was probably quite tired. I was I was in my early twenties, maybe late teens. That's sort of the time in my life when I saw it the first first time. And so the viewing circumstances influenced the way in which I received the film at the time and my subsequent memories of it. And what I find really interesting is actually to watch it again years later, which obviously I, I did as part of the preparation on the writing for the writing of the book. And, and sort of seeing how you feel now compared to then, 
films is almost unique in that respect. They they are they they stand there in the form that they were originally you know released, and you can revisit them and think about how you yourself have maybe changed in the years between screenings. I I, I love that feeling. What's very relevant to the film itself, this whole idea of aging, and especially being a man and having that whole thing laid out. I mean, it's such a, you know, we talk about women's film, but seconds is such a man's film when it comes to just like looking back at your life and what you could have done better. And then having that second chance and then subsequently fucking it up. It's no small accident. I, I kind of wrote this film when I turned 50. So if there is anything such as a, the male menopause, which I don't actually feel there is person I was writing, I was working on this at sort of time, really which made it even more interesting to me, uh, given the themes of this. I very much appreciate that it isn't a making of, that it is much more about the themes and that you are exploring all of the behind the scenes as far as that goes, the, the what manifests from the film itself, which is uh, a very, that's kind of my favorite way of looking at a movie as far as the emotions that it, it brings to you. And then the themes. I mean, that whole idea of, you know, we're talking about the digestive tract, talking about uh, the bodily fluids, you know, when people sweat, when people spit, you know, those kind of things. I really uh, appreciated that as well to pick up on those themes. I wanted to write something that I would have wanted to read. Production schedule records are, could be 10 a penny and I wouldn't want to read something like that. It's what you as a viewer might bring to the mix. I personally really enjoy almost like comparing notes with others who've seen the film. You know, it's, 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 not, it's just an extended chat, really, with, with people who have seen the film. So I'm always, I'm one of the reasons why I'm always, you know, I'm drawn to certain films because they lend themselves to this kind of a chat. There's always other people's opinions on, on this and other films I'm looking at. I think Anna was saying that, like, you know, there's probably only a handful of films that I could do this with. Second is one of the things one of them, Ed and I want to, but after that, I'm actually starting to think of many of those I could probably do in quite the same way to the extent that we did with this one. I have to think about that a little bit for a future project. But Seconds was absolutely ideal. And it was, I always, I thought for a while it was always going to be the one, one of the ones I would, I would look to, to work on. I am curious, have either of you ever seen it in the theatre or has it always been television and video? Never in a theatre. Unfortunately, never in a theatre. Um, I know it has. I'm I'm located in Melbourne in Australia, and uh, Jez is in the UK. Little town called Bradford on Avon, which is a few miles away from Bristol. Close to Bristol, but um, I ha- I know that the Melbourne Cinematheque have shown it here a few years ago, but I didn't get to see it at that stage. Somehow it passed passed me by, and. Um, I'd almost like to. I'm a bit involved with the Melbourne Cinematheque crew. I'm I'm almost tempted to give them another prod if they can possibly get their hands on a print because they do try to show all their cinema in its original format if they can. That would be an absolutely beautiful experience. And they play at Acme here. Um, their screenings are, which is a beautiful cinema very state-of-the-art, gorgeous uh, cinema experience. But I think that would be something else in itself. The interesting thing about writing a cinema monograph is that, and you're probably noticing this, Mike, there's so many more of them around now, but because we're able to get these films, we're able to stream these films. Seconds wasn't that easy to stream even when we started writing this book, but it is more now. But there were a couple of really lovely releases, the Eureka Masters of Cinema release and the Criterion release. The fact that in this day and age that you can actually access these films rather than wait for, I don't know, some sort of little cinema group to show it or a late night TV screening where you just come across it means that you know, it's given us this opportunity basically to write about it because otherwise why would anyone publish a book about it because no one can get to see it. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a nice, I think that, that these these book experiences are a really nice byproduct of the streaming DVD collector generation 
one of the few really nice byproducts. But you know, as as with everything, there's always a good to the bad, and and this is one of the the good experiences where we can all really dig into a film. And this is a film that's. You know, I think some people have been reticent to dig into it because it is so bleak, especially at the time, as in, you know, something we discuss a lot in the book. But as part of this whole new generation of film scholarship, watching Seconds so long after its release, it's still, Jez likes to say, important of things to come. I think that it's a lot of what it talks about has is has eventuated, is eventuating, um, especially in terms of this idea of, in some ways, a body dysmorphia and, you know, changing yourself. Now we can kind of watch it without being so close to it, especially for the males of the time. This was, a, you know, this was a film that was uh, addressing crisis and trauma, really, of a generation, a generation of men. And, I mean, uh, there will be uh, some eye-rolling from people of, you know, this generation about it, but it was a, you know, it was a real thing then. And there was a lot of expression, artistic expression that was coming out about it in terms of, you know, literature and, but it also film, a lot in film. We mentioned a couple like The Swimmer and um, Husbands, um, Cassavetti's Husbands in the book, but it was at the raw nerve. It was a raw nerve film. There were a number of things that this film did that I think were very, very bold and very brave. It's an interesting experience to write about this and then have to put yourself into the shoes of them at the time, the creators at the time, and what they were thinking about (laughs) and what they were going through. And if you think about it, the more and more you think about it, this is a, a really groundbreaking, it's a word that's used a lot, but it is a groundbreaking film, but it's one that has sort of fallen by the wayside. And I think that I'm sure I'm talking for Jez here as well in saying that it. Um, we just hope that our book, being one of really the the longest form piece that's written about about the the film, there's a, a few short form, shorter form pieces that have come out since you know the DVD releases and so forth, but that maybe we can encourage more people to see this film and sort of pique the curiosity of people because I think it's one that has been underseen, as we say, and that there are a lot of people who really, really love this film and it deserves to have a second life, shall we say. One of the drivers to write a book like this in the first place is actually that it might lead to some screenings whereby people who haven't seen a film could see it. I do actually hope that that will happen. You know, I think we're probably looking at COVID to play out some more before that does happen, but it would be great to think that it could lead to some decent screenings on some good screens and good audio and everything else and uh, audiences get some get an opportunity to, to uh, experience it. Yeah, you talked about how groundbreaking the film was, and I agree. And unfortunately, it paid the price of Memory Serves as far as being a little too groundbreaking and ended up being buried pretty quickly. Some of the issues that it was bringing up were just, were just as, as I was in here, was too much of a raw nerve for audiences uh, back in '66. And so that fundamentally, I think, explains why it just didn't get an audience at the time. I mean, it's a flawed movie as well. As you said, it's, it's definitely got its weaknesses. So I'm not going to pretend that isn't the case. It, it is. But I think some of the issues were just a bit uncomfortable for, for, for big audiences. I was thinking about cosmetic surgery and history of cosmetic surgery. And um, what's obviously, you know, cosmetic surgery procedures were a thing back in the day. They weren't anything like and nothing like they are today you know if, if people have that sort of surgery it's probably for corrective reasons nothing to do with vanity or whatever you might want to call it and so the idea of, of somebody going through these social processes to become somebody else just seems too fanciful i think for a lot of audiences and that's not it before you even get into having to wrap your head around john randolph becoming rock Hudson, which many people could just couldn't just so much but anyway, the, the ideas that it generated were just a bit too much. And so now looking back, you can see, you can think of it being ahead of its time for those sort of reasons. It was taking these things on and, and it was too much of some things. But I do too like how you point out the use of Hudson 
to me, is, and I think you guys agree, is is kind of brilliant. This whole idea of him as a gay actor who can't come out at the time and having that secret. And now here he is playing this character who has this major secret that he isn't who he purports to be. I thought it was a really smart move. Yeah, very smart move, but also the kind of sounded the death knell for the film. I mean, this is the thing, some brilliant choices, artistic choices, unfortunately, don't translate in a commercial sense. And this was um, exactly a perfect example of that because um, at the time, Hudson was, uh, you know, he was the the matinee idol uh, man. He was doing, you know, here's the pillow talk with um, pillow talk with Doris Day, and you know these these happy films that pe- made people feel good about themselves, and they were colourful, and they were, you know, what was the other one? Man's favourite. Man's favorite sport. I love that film. <laughs> I mean, you know, I love all the those sort of rock hearts and things. I, for me, as a viewer, I'm coming from it from a different angle. I wasn't, you know, the average Joe at the time who was a Rock Hudson fan, and then you all of a sudden see Rock Hudson in this incredibly bleak movie, you know, and and it, it didn't fit into their worldview. Basically, it wasn't what they wanted of him as a star. And therefore, it was kind of, unfortunately for Hudson too, he kind of suffered the Elvis curse, you know, where he wanted to do more, do different stuff. And no one wanted him to. They wanted him to just be the Rock Hudson that he'd been made into. I mean, Rock Hudson wasn't even his real name, you know. You know, they booed it at Cannes. When it was played at Cannes, the, the audience you know, Can is fa- famous for booing certain films, and this was one of them. But applauded applauded Hudson because he was there. I think he stood up and they applauded him. But I think the film, unfortunately, at the time, was sort of an embarrassment for everyone. Secretly proud of it, but shamed by the public response. Sadly, am I correct in, in quoting John Frankenheimer by saying that he said of it that it was it's a film that went from being a flop to a masterpiece without ever being a success. I'm probably quite wrong, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Paraphrased, it's perfect. <laughs> so I don't think you particularly ever saw much by way of um, remuneration, probably. And also it was made at a point in his, his own career when other events started to kind of trigger a kind of a decline in his in his own well-being, really, if not anything else, uh, with what happened in the, in the years subsequent to second release. We go into a little bit of that in the book around the politics because it does, um, not everyone's aware, but it does form part of a, a trilogy of films that are all totally watchable as standalone features. But Seconds is a third film, starting with The Manchurian Candidate, then going to Seven Days in May and then to uh, Seconds. So to watch them all together is a very fulfilling experience it's one of my most fulfilling cinema experiences I absolutely love it seconds is my favorite although seven days in May is a film that it's a it's a creeper more watches of that the more you this the beautiful Rod Serling script that just unfolds as a piece of genius and um, everyone's performance is just wonderful the way they work so well as standalone features or as a tri- and or as a trilogy is this incredible sum of their parts. I mean, Frankenheimer didn't work as the traditional auteur, shall we say? He would never have pitched himself as an auteur. He was sort of more of a uh, you know a, a technical director, I would say, or just someone you know. He he did his craft of directing, and that's what he did. He let his actors act, and he chose very good actors, and he knew how to direct them. But he also knew how to give them a long leash to get what what he wanted from them, because he came from live live TV drama, which in the 1950s into the early 60s, I think it sort of wound up in the early 60s, was very different to what 
we would probably now think of live TV drama. I think probably if anyone thought of it, they'd think about the set of Seinfeld or something like that, like, you know, a, a sitcom audience and people come out and you film with the static cameras or relatively static cameras. But it was like filming theatre. So they'd have to get on the stage. He'd have to capture the moment. He'd have to sort of direct around the actors. So he was an amazing director for actors and I think they all really appreciated that and then he was also someone who worked beautifully with his writers and he expected he would have writers on set to which is you know not to happen often and still doesn't happen but this idea that he would want his he would want to bounce things off his writers to see that where that he was getting the right stuff. And then you've got someone like at the time, James Wong Howe, who shot this. And I think that probably all of us can agree that Seconds is something to behold visually. It's um, incredible. Um, and at that time, James Wong Howe, I think he was around, he was definitely late 60s. So he was, he, he at that time in the 60s, he was a veteran of cinema. And really he was he, you can say he was a pioneer of cinema. He was one of the first cinematographers and prolific cinematographers. Jerry Goldsmith, early in his career as well with the music. Uh, and then you go, it just everything, the editing, the art direction, um, just all top of their class. And there was, so it was, it was like no one was carrying anyone in this film. It was everyone pitching at a really high level of filmmaking and, and actually given given the room to show off their skills. And I think that's something you really you really see in this. Like Frankenheimer, there is, um, uh, I know that on the Criterion release they have um, a, the Frankenheimer um, commentary there. And he talks very openly about the choices of these really extra wide camera angling that was James Wong Howe's choice and he was uncertain about it and he said it was just a stroke of brilliance. It adds so much to the film because it, it, it presents itself really in a quite a simple fashion. It's not a cluttered film, right? Um, it, there's a lot going in it on visually in it, but in terms of the narrative and the dialogue, it's really quite clean Yet, when Jez and I start writing this book, it's just that theme upon theme just unfolds itself. Like this whole thing, you know, uh, I think Jez really brought out this idea of the reflection and the mirrors, the digestion that we, you know, we're talking about that Jez, um, Jez, that chapter came to me pretty much already written that was one of the ones that Jez had really filled out and I could see from his writing where he got on a groove and he'd just gone for it <laughs> he'd actually been digested by the film himself and he was and it's just one film theme after another I mean it's like a perfect capsule film of what was happening in America in 1965 let's say when it was made and then 66 when it came out and this you know like these tectonic plates of the this you know coming together of the conservatism and then the counterculture and this I, this film is one of the perfect um, the perfect explanations of that experience without being didactic. I was thinking about that chapter that you were referring to there, Anna. I think that's the one where I'd, I'd go on to talk about mirror neurons, which are a relative scientific kind of discovery or theory. And a lot of that is around, I give a couple of illustrations in, in the book about what, I, what they actually are. So it's, if you if you see somebody in the street, say, stumble, or, or, or you know, you, your body has an actual reflex action almost to kind of mimic the physical movement of the person who's falling over or for instance if someone's carrying a load of plates on a tray and it's all a bit precarious and then they, they kind of stumble and they're they going to drop that tray, of, uh, that tray of plates your arms naturally reach out to try catch those things and the reason I mentioned it in, in the book is I was quite interested to have the, some of the editing in the film is quite choppy and jumpy and almost leads you to these kind of jolting kind of oh, moments. It happens quite a few times in the film. Almost to kind of break you out of what you're watching. So I, I love it when editing 
I think it can do have almost like a physical reaction in, in the viewer's body. So that's something I wanted to explore in that chapter. I seem to remember the editing in the uh, Bacchanalia scene being very striking. Yeah, that's where um, Frankenheimer really um, – another thing, that he tipped his hat to David Newhouse, who was the – with the main editor of the film, and he said that they gave him just a hodgepodge of um, of footage there. Um, they just were into capturing the moment as much as they could. Frankenheimer and another, I think, the one of the assistant camera people who actually um, caught all of that on camera because um, James Wong Howes, you know, he was a fairly conservative, um, older older man in the sense of, you know, in your 60s, you were seen as older at that time. And he was a bit uncomfortable with this display of nudity and John Frankenheimer had to do it himself. But it was very much about the spontaneity of it. So he said, we just gave him, they they just gave uh, David Newhouse a rabble, like, you know, just a mess of stuff. And he kind of created this, like this beautiful, uh, journey, I guess you could say. It had a really strong emotional trajectory, that scene, which I think is um, hard to do when you've got such a, a, a messy scene like that. Uh, and uh, But you really get that feeling um, with with Hudson. Hudson's performance is just beautiful with this, where you, he goes from from fear absolute fear and you can see it's not it's it's like that fear of uh when you have a phobia of something like when he's being dragged into there and he actually then has well basically like an orgasmic experience he's like and he's reborn during it so it's like a rape scene initially really it kind of plays out like that everyone else is having fun but he's not he's saying no and they're not taking any notice um, so to be able to to really bring that out in the editing, I think is no mean feat. It's it's really something, you know. It's it's I would say that's one scene that any would be wannabe editors should watch as a masterclass of editing. And one of the things that uh, seems to have been a phenomenon for me when I when I've written books is that after I've written something. I, I, I might reread something that I wrote about that book and it triggers thoughts I didn't even occur to me at the time. Actually, because you, you wish you had and you wish you'd included it, but I've only recently been thinking about how you have the grape stomp party scene and it's really in the very next scene where is it his own sort of house party that was welcomed in with people from the, from the area for the first time. He's getting drunk. So it's almost as though he's drinking the wine that he's helped to make, which I don't think we really kind of touched on particularly in the book. Well, I wish we had. <laughs> no, we didn't. But this is the great thing, Jez. I think that, you know, these um, sort of books, like you write 40,000 words or whatever on a film, and there's still stuff to be able to be said. And if we can create the germ that, you know, gets other people thinking as well, that's uh, that's fantastic. What were some of the biggest challenges of putting this book together? Well, for me personally, it was actually grinding to a halt in the writing of it. I, I got so far, and it just it just dried up for me, which is deeply frustrating. However, I kind of knew that I couldn't just let it go, and I had to find find a way. So it's that kind of hiatus, that kind of hiatus, that just just drove me nuts, really. Um, but I think once we kind of got got beyond that stage, it picked up its own momentum again, which is very gratifying. Well, I don't recall many, many problems in terms of, you know, us agreeing on things. I and mean, we tend to, we were pretty, you know, on the same page, weren't we? Um, in terms of what they should actually look like. That there to say? It came together actually really easily between Jez and I. And with relatively, I mean, we didn't have many face to face discussions. It was mainly text and, email and I guess our submissions and rewrites speaking for themselves, shall we say, which is great. You know, it it kind of says something, I think. I'd like to think that's a positive thing that has, has, you know, revealed itself in the final product, basically. Um, But for me, I think it was more, I was 
born in the early 70s, so this is very part much history for me. But being able to create a sense of history, an immersive sense of history, I guess, and giving people a really strong understanding of where this film was grounded and the kind of mentality that it came from um, and how all the players fed into that. Because I think that Frankenheimer's politics very much played into this and he was very close with the Kennedy family. You can see, even this is, even though this isn't overtly political in sense of what we would normally consider politics, this is the personally political film. It's still definitely there. It's the kind of, uh, it's the social politics. And this idea of having it all. I mean, it's one thing that, I think Frankenheimer saw that one of the main themes of the film was around this idea of the memory thing was his his uh, central theme where he said that it was um, without your memories, you're no one. So that was the whole idea of really being able to embrace your memories as a person. I'm sure that many of us have memories we'd like to erase, but they are all, um, even the, the the bad ones, even the uncomfortable ones, are all colour us as a per, as people and, and hopefully we can learn from the bad ones as well. Uh, so this idea of being a shell of a person to start again as an adult, well, that's why it doesn't work. But this is a really existential film. Like, you know, you can go down a massive existential rabbit hole. You can look at so many, and we t- we talk about these things, like the classicism of the film, the Alice in Wonderland aspect, the sur- surreal- surreality of the film, you know, in a number of ways. Uh, mention, we mentioned in it as well um, a film I know you're familiar with, Mike, uh, Case for a Rookie hang- Hangman, you know. All of these films, while you would think that a Czech film from, uh, well, the same similar time, actually, would have nothing much to do with an American with film that's commenting a lot, you know, directly on American society. There's these strange little threads of similarity, you know. Well, even more, ropes, they're not threads. They're really actually ropes. Face face of another, for example, this whole idea, eyes without a face, the, the Franju film. All of these play into seconds in such a beautiful way. But that's see a similar one. I can see why Jazz wanted to write about this because the thing plays out in a very similar fashion. You know, there's so much that kind of plays out in the in a seemingly a very straightforward. I mean, this is a, a classical narrative structure. It's not playing with form. Uh, in any way, but um, it's it's using so much. And that's what's really exciting about it. I mean, I'm still seeing things as well. And, yeah, I, I think that it's a film that as it gets older too, another generation will see something different in it. Great. I think identity politics, which obviously is a very hot potato today, as uh, runs through the film, the fundamental question, who am I? Who do, who do I want to be? Is what this is all about, and it's that's that is so relevant to today. So you kind of hope that people in their late teens, nearly twenties, could see a film like this and still get something else. So, Jez, what are you working on now? Well, I'm I'm sort of I haven't got any book sized projects currently running. There's, there was um, about a year or so ago, there was a prospect of me starting another monograph with a different publisher on the British science fiction. Book. Day the Earth caught fire. I have not got very far with that. I used to say the public is very unsunny about that. I may return to that at some point, but more recently I'm, I'm intending to write things like the chapter for Emma's Brother Frankenstein book, for example. That's that's coming out at some point fairly soon. I've contributed the chapter for a book about TV that frightened children in the 1970s. It's coming out through Bloomsbury. I'm going to write the one for the same editors about um, folk horror. So it's fragment. I'm also doing more fiction. I've wanted to do for ages and, and I've had a few short stories published in the last 12 months or so. So I'm trying to diversify a bit. So go back to what I said earlier on about, you know, there's a finite number of films that I could probably write an entire book about. 
I'm not saying I've run out, but I, my appetite for doing so is somewhat less than it used to be. If I had to name something other that I would want to have a go at, one film that stands out for me would be the film then, the 50s giant ant movie. Now, whether I could write as a word on a giant ant movie, I'm not sure at this point. But if I had to say, what would I like to do before I die? That's my, that might be one of them, possibly. Otherwise, I'm trying to diversify a bit then. And Emma, you mentioned the uh, Bride of Frankenstein book. What else are you working on? Yeah, that's pretty much my main focus at the moment. So I'm trying to, apart from just uh, working with some different DVD labels, doing some commentaries, doing some liner notes and essays for some different um, companies, the Bride of Frankenstein, the next, um, well, basically the the run-up to the end of the year, 2021 that's when we're we're ch- chatting now just in case this someone's listening to it later um is me editing that and sort of sticking bringing that together and working out what connective tissue i need to <laughs> do you like that use connective tissue with the bride of frankenstein we're we're right into the meta stuff um uh, <laughs> Jess and i but uh yeah getting all of that together, getting it to Sarah Karloff to write her foreword for it, which will be great. Hopefully seeing that come out as a really nice release. I'm really excited, though, because um, it is a collection of contributors. Kind of thought about it a bit with this book and I went, There's a first of all, there's a really lovely monograph out already. It's a bit difficult to get, but it's one of the BFI ones by Alberto Manguel. Um, and that's a great uh, monograph on The Bride of Frank. Um, but it just seemed right to get a, a, an 85-year-old film that people still can watch and and people know and it's had such a huge influence on people to get them get get a lot of people to talk about it and how it's um influenced their lives and talk about different themes after that who knows i'll just have to see i'm just saying joy it was a a joy to write that it brought up so many memories from my first viewing of the film so i hope i did it justice and, and kind of gave you something that will act as a bit of a foil or a contrast to some of the other chapters in the book. It's going on. <laughs> They're all very, very different, so that's great in itself. So then I'll stitch it together and create my own monster out of it. <laughs> yeah, I really look forward to reading that because it's, it's definitely a favourite of mine as well. Is there a good place to keep up on y'all and keep up on the seconds book? Well, we, we do have a Facebook group that we started about six weeks or so ago. We did that with the intention of offering a kind of a VIP option. You know, there's a discount if they bought a copy, which is going to run its course now. But I've been coming up a little while longer, I think, just to kind of keep interest going. So, yeah, there's that. Otherwise, you're you know, available from all good outlets. I do have it up on my page, which is emmawestwood.net. I think Jez and I are going to set up a bit of a, a Twitter page for it because there seems to be a lot of film activity on Twitter. I get a nice, you know, sort of toing and froing with people on there. So, yeah, we'll just pop it up on uh, Twitter and see see what happens. Well, thank you guys so much. This was such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It's always great talking to you. Bye.